Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 48 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time here, it's best to start on episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns of our tale. We're so excited to be reaching thousands of tutor-minded people, literally from all over the world. And we've had such a great time researching and imagining this project and especially sharing it with everybody. And if you are enjoying it, which we certainly hope you are, support us by buying some Tutor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tutor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all these wonderful items we have for sale. So you can get a Do You Tutor tee or a Tutor Time Machine logo sweatshirt. And... You'll support the podcast at the same time, and we're so grateful. In our last episode, we were in 1532 with Margaret Wyatt and Anne Boleyn. But now we're returning to see how our two friends, Philomena and Constance, are managing as everything falls apart around them. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 48, The Poultry Compter in which Constance is in part forgiven, then wholly condemned. Constance stared at the ceiling. Shadows crisscrossed the beams, in just the same way they had at court. The mattress on the floor was bearable, and yet this was the worst room she had ever been in, stuck away here with no hint to her fate. Though it was midday, Wynne snoozed on the floor with a blanket over her head. The girl might like jail. It was far less taxing than court life. The door creaked, and Wynne rustled. Someone must have brought food. Sit up, mistress. Do not lie spread out like a dead dog. Lady Clinton's voice shocked her, and Constance obeyed so quickly she had a moment of light-headedness. Her mentor perched on a stool, dressed in deep maroon, and face unruffled and calm. The jailer stoked the fire. Lady Clinton removed her gloves. I did not do what I was accused of. "'Dearest lady, I did not,' Constance said. The quick calculation in Lady Clinton's eyes made Constance wish she had been more reserved. "'Do not moan, child. I cannot abide it.' The woman was not here to comfort. That was obvious. Riding herself and placing her hands together, Constance prepared for examination. "'Avant,' Lady Clinton said. "'What exactly have you done to land yourself here?' I carried the host to the Countess of Lennox. Disgust, sadness, disappointment clouded Lady Elizabeth Clinton's face. You thought yourself wiser than the Queen, who has forbidden visitors to that cankered harpy of a woman. I meant no harm. You betray the Queen, who brought you, a stoner, as maid of honour against the advice of many. I never meant to betray the queen. Indeed, I did not. I sought only to bring the host to a pious lady to save her soul. Come now, mistress. You paint your actions prettily, but the world does not see them so. Constance wanted to beg mercy, to deny what she had done. Lady Clinton was too cynical to believe contrition. She would curl her lip and think her false. Yet Constance knew her own innocence. She had done the thing for the best of reasons. I have misjudged you mightily, Constance. Lady Clinton spoke with a sharp edge. I once thought you quiet and fearful, but now I see your mouth is closed to keep your secrets. The words stung Constance more than the insult. She did not like to be seen through. She did not like her actions to be considered. Madam, I never desired to be so. 
I only sought to fit in, and to do my best. Tis so. Then you have failed with great vengeance. I have failed, but as impoverished as I stand, on my oath I sought to do right. You are a bold chit to devise such an enterprise. And what gain had you from this? A dress? A jewel? Constance flushed. What an affront! The deed was done for cash or position? I am not that that you think I am, Lady Clinton. Constance could not halt the anger as it crept into her voice. For money? Do you think me so low? I am of a faith you disapprove, but it is mine nevertheless. And I did go to her for her soul, and I was the person who should do it. Why, who compelled you? I thought it for myself. And did you bless the bread yourself, Constance? Forever her words would be suspect. Lady Clinton was lost to her. For pity's sake, madam, do not make me more wretched by forcing names from my lips. Lady Clinton rose. So be it. In truth, I would rather not know. If it be those in high places, I undo myself as an informer. You threw your lot in with troublemakers. You thought it just. Youth has done it before and shall do it again. Despite my better judgment, I will plead your case. Madam, stammered Constance, I find your words more than fair-minded. Fellow feeling, was that the steel that held this woman together? The Queen will not have you. You must to my house in Lincolnshire, Scribsby. I will prepare for your wedding with Herbert, away from the influence of those who would use you for their own purpose. Constance heard herself thank her gratefully, and she was grateful. The lady's home in Lincolnshire was preferable to prison. But Herbert? Herbert? She had not thought of him once. She most of all wanted Rutland. Refusing Lady Clinton was impossible, but a pardon would buy her time, and perhaps through some twist Herbert would marry another lady, and she would marry Rutland after Charles married the illustrious brotherhood of the True Cross. Screaming from the hall, the door to her cell shoved open. The mask! The ominous hat! Why now? Why here? This beaked figure was horrible! Doctor! cried Lady Clinton. Why do you appear in such garb? Is there plague here? Oh, God forbid it! Constance stammered. I'm, I'm not ill. I swear it. Please, sir. Please, doctor. Leave us. The doctor put out his gloved hands to calm the women. We must see to all of the inmates, even the ladies. I cannot be too careful. Pestilence would spread quickly here. The voice sounded distorted through the mask, as if the speaker were chanting a low litany. I have never heard this. Lady Clinton pressed herself to the wall. You are fortunate, madam, that you have no call to know, but indeed, indeed, it is always done, and now I must beg your departure. The doctor waved his arms. Lady Clinton objected. Alone? With a young gentlewoman? That is outlandish. Constance agreed. She did not want to be alone with this horrible apparition. It is something newly considered, the doctor argued. Panic had run out of Lady Clinton, and she was wary. Doctor! have you a sword and no satchel? Why, doctor, do you not bow to a better? Is that a diamond on your boot? She peeled herself off the wall, reached out, and snatched off the beak. My lord Rutland? Lady Clinton stepped back in surprise. Rutland? Constance's eyes filled with tears. He had come for her? Unexpected joy filled her to her toes. Why are you here, my lord? Lady Clinton barked. For my sweet love. Rutland! Oh, Rutland! Constance burst out and threw her arms around him. Oh, Rutland, it was the worst imaginable thing, and they hit me. 
He buried his face in her neck, lifting her from the floor. Constance, my love, why are you here? Why did you not pay the fine? They would not take it. I cannot tell you what has happened to me. Put her down, commanded Lady Clinton. Nay, I cannot. Oh, Rutland, Constance cried. Oh, absurd ass, admonished Lady Clinton. Put her down or I will call the guards. Rutland was undaunted. She is my lute, my fairy queen. You know nothing, nothing, only the force of your own want, Lady Clinton said. I have gone to great lengths to be with Constance, my lady, Rutland challenged. I love her. I will not leave her. Loutish knave. Your costume has caused such upset. Can you not hear the screaming? The neighbourhood is in an uproar of fear. It suited you for one second to see this jade. I must be with her. Rutland, daring Lady Elizabeth Clinton in this manner. Constance never hoped to be part of a tale as captivating as Tristan and Isolde, Pyramus and Thisbe, Lancelot and Guinevere. This is no midwinter's dream. My Lord Rutland, you are the Queen's ward. She will not suffer this. Her Majesty will beat you with a stick to calm her fury and lock you fifty miles from hell. Guards! Lady Clinton grabbed her cloak. You are coming with me, my lord. I do this last favour and spare the world the breeding of two such dolts. Fear not, my love. I will breach whatever rises betwixt us. Rutland cried as the guards took him. Constance wanted to spew a beautiful sentiment, not to say I love you, sweetness, but something more, something that would close the space between them. She opened her mouth and a strange gargling came out that was staunched by Lady Clinton. Do not speak. No one speak. Constance Stoner, I have done with you. Now, off with you, my lord. Rutland locked his flaming eyes on Constance. What drama he brought to his gaze. Her heart contracted. Devil take thee. Lady Elizabeth cursed unceremoniously, pulling Rutland's hood down, blinding him. The men guided him out the door with the furious woman behind, damning the idiocy of young love. Rutland, Rutland, Constance thought. How charming he was as he stumbled out, his earnestness so endearing, and when it was tied up in a kiss, blinding. He would find a way. Her Majesty loved him as everyone did. All would be well. Constance thinks her true love will save her. Maybe it will. No spoilers. Although in my regular life, I like spoilers. Mm -hmm. I like to know what will happen so I can relax and enjoy the book, the play, the story, the movie, whatever. It seems Shakespeare would agree with you. He definitely believed in telling people what they were in for. And not just whether it was a comedy or a tragedy, but he would outline the whole plot. He used lots of theatrical conventions. And one of our faves is that whether the play was a comedy or a tragedy or a history, Shakespeare would have characters dress up and wear disguises. And the whole idea of the disguises had so much going on in them because sometimes there was that meta aspect if it was a boy dressed as a girl, dressed as a boy. But sometimes it was just dressing to be richer or poorer than the character really was. We said in an earlier episode that the Margrave wore a fake mustache and beard to disguise himself. It seems that people actually did it, disguised themselves, in order to move through the world unnoticed. And that's why we had to put Rutland in disguise. And he's wearing a disguise that would make people turn away, not get closer to him. Because Rutland is disguised as a plague doctor, and that was a figure people feared. I mean, really feared. Yes, we've talked about the plague several times during the podcast, but it was always a worry for everyone during the 16th century. And it could come up at any time, out of the blue. Elizabeth herself, she was terrified of the plague. And 
For good reason. Well, it didn't discriminate on social standing, that is for sure. But unexpected death was so common that actually they weren't always sure if it really was the plague. It wasn't as if they could just test and say, you have the plague. No, no. It took time to determine whether or not it was actually the plague and not people dying of famine or something else, which sounds bizarre. But some people seem to have died of the plague without ever running a fever. Mm -hmm. And because the plague was always coming and going... And of course, people were always dying, so it was hard to determine the exact intersection. The plague looked different at different times, and that's not true of every disease. Smallpox, for instance, was a more obvious disease. It it always looked the same. In fact, Elizabeth herself contracted smallpox in 1562, and she was really ill. And then in 1563, the next year, plague hit London. That's a lot of deadly disease. And Elizabeth herself could have died. She was probably feeling very mortal since she had just spent months in the sickbed. The plague outbreak in 1563, it seems to have killed the highest percentage of Londoners of all the outbreaks. Somewhere between a quarter and a third of the city's entire population. Can you imagine? I mean, it must have been terrifying. I mean, the grief, the illness, the uncertainty... In 1563, by mid-August, more than a 1,000 people were dying per week. And that sounds like a lot, but it was even more when you think about the actual population of London at the time. And Elizabeth had just recovered from the smallpox, and obviously she didn't want to contract the plague on top of that. And so Elizabeth leaves the city of London, and she takes all of her court with her. And she goes to Windsor, where she isolates herself so she won't become sick. And she wants to you know, should we say powerfully discourage visitors. So she has a gallows set up and she says it's to execute anyone who comes from London just in case they're bringing the plague with them. That's pretty clear. (laughs) Don't come in. That would discourage a visit. It would. But now if you're very rich and you want to self-isolate, people just fly to a private island. And you really don't need the theatricality of the gallows because you just don't allow any plans to land. Exactly. But then as now, in Tudor London... Everyone who could leave the city did. And Henry VIII was also known to leave the city, just like Elizabeth did. As we've said, first they had to identify if it was in fact the plague. And since they couldn't do it with a test, they had to use what we think of now as statistical information. Those record-keeping English people (laughs) became very well-versed in compiling and distributing numeric information about London's morbidity and mortality. This began in earnest in the 16th century because the city started recording how many people died during any particular week, where they died, that is, what part of the city they died in, and what they died of. And this information wasn't just for the government. It was distributed commercially. You could buy it. Get it now. Find out who died this week. Is the cobbler still alive? Find out now. (laughs) (laughs) Just a pence or an angel. (laughs) I think it was a bit like that. They distributed them in the form of handbills, which they called bills of mortality. So bleakly unsentimental. (laughs) But to the point. (laughs) But to the point. (laughs) The clerk of each parish or section of the city would compile the information on the numbers and the causes of death, and then they would report it on Tuesday. Every Tuesday. They were so organized. I know. And then these reports went to the mayor, and then they went to the privy council, and they would review it. And then on Thursday morning, the reports went on sale to the public. 
Did Angus Whitnell live? Find out in this week's Bill of Mortality. I think you are enjoying the gallows humor. <laughs> I am. And you could just buy these handbills one at a time, or you could get a yearly subscription. Then is now. I guess this started in the 16th century because they had printing presses, so they could run these off pretty quickly, right? But you can imagine people became pretty good at figuring out if the death toll was increasing in such a way that indicated the plague was setting in. A weekly rise in the death tolls in the early summer was a pretty good indication. Or if, for instance, a boat sank, you could see the deaths were caused by drowning and not the plague. It's very interesting. And now we have all this incredible information about these death records and where people were when they died. It's an amazing outcome. And you know, they were very logical mm-hmm. people. And there are letters where people complain, actually, that the health records are really only to tell the rich people when they should leave town mm-hmm. or to tell the merchants what they should stock up on. Like you know, insider trading. Exactly. Kind of, yeah. That it wasn't really to help regular people. Well, you can't blame them for thinking that the rich did leave the city and the merchants did stock up on their best-selling plague tea or whatever else people wanted when they thought the plague was coming. I mean, that is sort of human nature. And then at the end of every year, they would print a kind of commemorative death bill that would state how many people died during the entire year. And they would have a cross or a prayer on something. You know, it was more ornate. It was a special edition. And then people would save them. Some magazines do that sort of thing now, like an obituary. But it's not the same because this was so general, right? I mean, it was everybody who had died. Well, that's true, but it's more like year in review. Yeah. If you had someone you cared about die during that year, you would definitely buy one to keep. But if a regular person couldn't leave town, they didn't just give up and say, you know, maybe the plague will get me and maybe it won't. As we've said, how-to manuals were incredibly popular during the Elizabethan age. So, of course, they had how-to manuals about how to deal with the plague. And there were also official plague orders from the government. We sort of imagine all these things are modern, but clearly not. I mean, this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the plague orders have everything that we're familiar with. They quarantined affected people. They imposed a curfew. There were rules about the burial of the dead. There were rules about keeping things clean. No large groups could meet. And of course, grammar schools, fencing schools, and the theaters were closed. Even though they didn't really understand how these illnesses were communicated, they understood the ideas of crowds and contact as making disease happen faster. I mean, I used to read that they closed the theaters, and actually I kind of thought it was a mean caprice or something. Mm-hmm. But, but it wasn't. But no, it wasn't. It wasn't. And actually, Stratford-upon-Avon lost nearly one-third of its population in 1564. And we know that because of the records they kept of the deaths. People aren't just (laughs) supposing that, you know. Sometimes you read those statistics and you think, how do they know? Are they just guessing? But no, they're actually looking at these records that people kept. And that is a very important year in my mind. I guess the world is lucky that the disease missed John and Mary Shakespeare's baby, who was baptized William on April 26th. 1564. Yes, William Shakespeare was born during an outbreak of the plague. Do you think that it helped that there was a tradition at that time that women didn't leave the house for 40 days after birth, which sort of worked as its own quarantine for women who had just given birth and their babies? I'm sure it had something to do with it. It limited contact, but then it didn't help you if your people from the house were coming in and out. But I'm sure it did make a difference. Anyway, I'm happy that little William made it. That idea of staying at home for 40 days after a baby was born was a religious idea 
based on the story that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. After the 40 days, according to tradition, Jesus re-entered the world and was baptized. I wonder if people were more likely to follow those religious traditions than government-imposed plague orders, because some people followed those governmental rules and some did not. Shocking! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that seems to apply particularly here. (laughs) So if a house was quarantined, sometimes people would sneak out, that is now, and escape to the countryside, and many people broke curfew. But overall, London townspeople did hold the city together and follow what they were supposed to do in general. So much so that during most plague outbreaks, people continued to have their jobs. And while in some countries the plague led to civil unrest, there are not records of that in London. I mean, some disruptions, of course, but not on the scale that you would imagine. I just wonder, even though they kept great records of what happened statistically, I wonder what the average person in London thought about the plague. I think there were just so many diseases. I think they considered disease and death in a way that we just can't because we feel like we have so much control over it now. I just don't think they had the illusion of control that we have. Also, it was a religious time, so I'm sure many people thought it was some sort of punishment from God. We've also heard that in the 20th century. In the 21st century. In the 21st century. And obviously, religion and government were connected, so authorities did suggest praying, and they did offer prayer, as well as these other more practical measures. That's true. But, you know, even then, some people thought the plague came not because of God, but because of the stars being misaligned. Really, they used Mm -hmm. astrology, and they thought that it was because of where Venus was. And then there were other people who thought that it came from some earth-based environmental cause. Cats, water, bad air, but actually not something linked to God's wrath. And some people thought it came from a combination of things. You know, whatever you thought the source was, there were how-to books to help. How did those how-to books help? If you contracted the plague, you could survive, and survival has been recorded from as low as 50% survival to as high as 70% survival. And that's not something we associate with the plague. We kind of associate that once you got it, you died. I think that's because of how the Tudor plague books told them to do it, the how-to plague. I mean, probably not. It was probably like circumstances that nobody really were conscious of, right? I mean, either you had gotten, I don't know, could you have gotten a mild case Case? of the plague Mm -hmm. before? Or, you know, in the 16th century, as we've talked about, it was really a time of scientific change. There's this movement from the idea that the body is made of humors that have to be in balance to a more chemical point of view. And maybe some of that actually did help people survive, even though, they, again, they didn't really understand exactly what was going on. Well, the people who believed in humors, those people would have chosen a certain type of remedies, remedies that would balance the humors, but other people would have chosen remedies that were offered by herbalists or apothecaries, sort of based on how they thought about the body. We always criticize the idea of the humors because, after all, it's completely incorrect. But what they did was plausible within the structure they created. If you believed you should get the bad thing out of you so you could return to balance, They would make you throw up or sweat or most famously have your blood drained. And when a person would be calm, they would think the treatment was working. But the calmness might just indicate that (laughs) death was on the way. Right, but we do know that there's a psychological element 
to getting better. And I don't want to stress that too much because I think it's not people's fault if they don't get better. It's not because they're not thinking the right thoughts. These things that they did made people feel like they were going to get better and that put them in a more relaxed state. So maybe it did help. Yeah, it's hard to know it could, because the doctors who favorite chemicals would give sulfur and I don't think that that affected the disease. It might have been more successful than making people throw up. But I don't know. And then some people, because they thought the plague was airborne, they would try to disturb the air or turn back the bad air. And they would do that by shooting off their weapons in front of their houses. So <laughs> Again, that... I mean, that didn't work, but you can sort of see how they came to that conclusion. And maybe shooting off your weapon in front of your house just released stress. You <laughs> thought you had done something to make it better. But thinking you've done something is meaningful. I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. There is an element of that, right? I think it made people feel better if it came from a how-to book. Mm -hmm. People believe in things that are written in books. And of course, there was also diet advice. What to eat or what not to eat. And if you ate this, you were more resistant to the plague. Don't eat beets, for instance. But I love beets. In the 1600s, <laughs> They thought beets were no good for fighting off plague. I can't accept that beets were anything but good for you at all times. Whether And anyway, if you have the plague, are you really going to want to eat a beet? I mean, it doesn't seem like that would be top of your list. It's just an idea they had. I'm, I mean, I'm defending beets, but sometimes it seems amazing how many people did survive. And especially because at this time there was such a wide variety of approaches to dealing with the disease. And this whole conversation makes me slightly nervous about how much we think we're determining why some people get better from disease and why they don't. <laughs> one thing we haven't mentioned is that no one would suspect a high peer like Rutland of being a plague doctor because most plague doctors were government employees. And this is a good disguise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because no high peer wants employment, no, not God, no. employment. I know Bowman definitely do not have jobs. It was obviously a very important job. One of the best things the government did was to keep good records. Mm -hmm. And that helped them understand the waves of disease, as we've said. And the plague doctors were integral to tracking the who, the when, and the where of deaths. And also, plague doctors often witnessed the wills of the people who were dying. And that was a very important function because the clergy wouldn't come near people with the plague. I think until probably the 21st century or maybe the 20th century, doctors had more to do with helping people die than really helping you live. But Rutland does not want to do anything but make a deal for Constance or just be alone with her. Get rid yeah. of Lady Clinton. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes down with his fellow high-up peers being with Constance. But first, I will be doing some Tudor time travel. Next time, we'll be joining Anne and Margaret. We hope you'll join us for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.